I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The recent negotiation on lifting the debt ceiling included Republican demands for cutting funding for the social safety net programs of Medicaid, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known by the acronym SNAP, and the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program, which has the acronym TANF, TANF. How much would cuts to these programs reduce government spending and lower the budget deficit? And at what cost to its beneficiaries, who tend to be among the most vulnerable in society? Melissa Kearney has analyzed these questions in a recent Econofact memo with her colleague in the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, Luke Pardue. Melissa is the director of that group, as well as a professor in the economics department of the University of Maryland. Among other professional affiliations, she served as a senior editor of The Future of Children, served as director of the Hamilton Project at Brookings from 2013 to 2015, and is a co-chair of the JPAL State and Local Innovation Initiative from 2015 to 2018. Melissa, welcome back to Econofact Chats. Thanks, Michael. To begin with, can you please describe the three programs I mentioned, SNAP, TANF, and the Medicaid for Adults and Children? Sure. These are all sort of sprawling programs, but I'll try and hit the main elements of them. So SNAP, as you mentioned, is the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, and it provides monthly vouchers to low-income households to purchase food. This is the program that used to be referred to as food stamps back when people got stamps, little stamps that they could give to grocery stores as payments for uh, qualifying food purchases. So now people who receive SNAP benefits use electronic benefit transfer cards. They look like credit cards or a debit card, um, and they have a certain amount of money put on them from the government each month, and they can use them to purchase food at participating vendors. It's important to realize that eligibility for SNAP is restricted based on income level. So generally, a household will qualify for SNAP benefits if their income is below 130% of the federal poverty line. So like, what does that mean? For example, a household of three people could qualify for SNAP benefits if their annual household income is is less than uh, about $30,000 a year. Um, Just to give a sense of how this translates into benefits for individuals before the pandemic expansions in 2019 and 2020, the typical household receiving SNAP benefits was awarded about $121 per month per person, which comes to about $4 a day per person. What about the TANF, the Temporary Assistance to Needy Families program? Okay, this program replaced the AFDC program in 1986. So AFDC provided cash assistance to single mothers and their children. That was our cash welfare program in this country. And then welfare reform got rid of AFDC and replaced it with TANF, 
which is a federal block grant. And so this is a set amount of funding giving to states for the stated purpose of assisting families with low levels of income. Um, that money both has a lot of restrictions and a lot of flexibility, so it's run differently across states. And Medicaid, most people know what Medicaid is, but can you describe it a little bit? Sure. It's our country's public health insurance program for low-income children and adults. It's funded jointly by the federal government and state governments. Um, its beneficiaries include children, low-income non-elderly adults, low-income adults above the age of 65, patients in long-term care facilities, and disabled individuals. So it's a really important public health insurance program in our country. You know, interestingly, it was created in 1965 with the Social Security amend amendments, and it was originally linked to cash welfare, low-income families. Um, but it's been expanded a lot since then, including as part of the health care reform, the Affordable Care Act in 2010. So you mentioned that Medicaid was created in the 1960s. This was part of President Johnson's war on poverty. And these programs form important part of what we call the social safety net. What's the evidence, Melissa, on the efficacy of these programs? That is a big question, Michael. <laughs> Researchers have looked into the way these programs affect a range of outcomes, health, nutrition, labor force participation, both in the short term and long term. So the nature of the evidence really depends on the population we're talking about and the outcome that we're focused on. Okay, so let's start with Medicaid then. What about the overall benefits and the efficacy of Medicaid for its target population? Okay, so it is the largest means-tested transfer program in the U.S. in terms of both caseloads and costs. Uh, I want to start by emphasizing it's a really important source of health insurance in the U.S. In each month last year, an average of 37 million children, 39 million non-elderly adults, and 17 million disabled or elderly adults received Medicaid benefits. That you know that came to 789 billion dollars in expenditures uh, for for federal and state governments. The 60 percent of those costs are borne by the federal government. So a few things we know about the effects of Medicaid. Let's start with evidence we have from how the expansions in Medicaid eligibility that took place in the 1990s when it was expanded beyond. AFDC welfare recipients to more low-income parents and children. Researchers have shown that this led to an increase in health insurance coverage among parents and children, and correspondingly to improvements in health outcomes for kids. Uh, you know, one really notable finding in studies shows that the expansions of Medicaid led to a reduction in infant mortality in the U.S. There's also good evidence that happened after the 2010 Affordable Care Act expansions of Medicaid. Uh, it was expanded in a majority of states. And we saw that um, about 20 million new Medicaid recipients joined the caseloads uh, at that time. And this dramatically reduced the number of people in the U.S. without health insurance, probably by about 10 million. So one idea that people have put out there is by having Medicaid, people weren't as obliged to find jobs for health insurance. Is there any evidence of employment effects of Medicaid? That's a good question, and it and it makes the important point that in the U.S., uh, so many people get their health insurance through their employer, and so part of the motivation for expanding Medicaid to more low-income people was to make sure that people who were out of work 
could still have access to basic health insurance. Now, overall, there does not appear to have been a substantial reduction in labor force participation. But looking across studies, there's some evidence that some people increase their rates of work and others decrease their rates of work. I know that there have been some studies that focused on the state of Oregon because of changes in the program there. What did those studies find? Yeah, this was really a fascinating opportunity for healthcare researchers because in Oregon, they only had enough money to expand Medicaid to some subset of people who qualified. And so that set up a natural study design for researchers, people who were randomly assigned to have access to Medicaid as compared to people who were very similar and also applied but didn't get access. They were in the next couple of years more likely to utilize healthcare services. And importantly, they were less likely to experience financial distress. So, you know, I will note that these studies don't find much evidence of immediate improvements in health for covered adults, but the findings are very consistent with the way economists think about insurance, which is that it protects people from out-of-pocket medical expenditures, and that's exactly what this expansion did. Um, but I don't want to overstate that case. The researchers did find that newly covered adults we're more likely to utilize many preventative services. And so we can expect that over time, that will lead to positive health effects. Melissa, I know you're particularly focused on the economic welfare of children, especially children who grow up in poor households. What are the effects of Medicaid for children that research has found? The evidence is really overwhelming here, Michael. The Evidence from academic research shows that Medicaid spending on children, in particular early in life, improves their long-term health and economic outcomes. For example, there's evidence that children who obtained access to Medicaid in their early years of life due to program expansions ultimately experienced lower rates of chronic conditions as adults and fewer hospitalizations related to diabetes and obesity, there's also evidence that they were more likely to complete more years of schooling. Um, you know, there's some studies that connect the exposure to Medicaid expansions during childhood to adult earnings and tax payments. And that, and that research shows that Medicaid spending on kids ultimately saves the government money because these kids grow up to be more productive and pay more in taxes and, and rely on safety net programs less. So in effect, Medicaid is a positive net sum investment for the government. Especially when it's providing health insurance to young kids. Okay, so what about SNAP, the program that used to be called food stamps, as you noted? SNAP is a really critical safety net program because it's one of the only programs in this country that provides a consumption floor to people who have low income or fall on hard times. So much of our safety net has moved to be conditioned on work. And SNAP, I mean, I'll mention this, it does have some work requirements, but it really, um, you know, it's, it's the one program where people can get access to income assistance in the form of a, a voucher to buy food. So it provided benefits, again, before the pandemic to about 36 million people in a typical month. Researchers have showed that the SNAP caseload grows when the labor market or economy is weak and it shrinks when the labor market improves. That's exactly how we would expect a means-tested safety net program to work in terms of responding to business cycles. 
There's no categorical eligibility for SNAP. So again, it's a rare program where someone can obtain SNAP benefits, even if they're not disabled or have a dependent child, though the overwhelming majority of SNAP beneficiaries do fall into one of those vulnerable categories in the sense that they're either elderly, disabled, or have a child living in their home. What does research show? It leads to a reduction in food insecurity. It essentially acts like an increase in household budgets. And unsurprisingly, people use this additional income to buy more food and other things. There's some evidence of a small reduction in work effort among some food stamp recipients. In particular, it looks like perhaps single moms with kids. This would be predicted by standard economic model of how work effort responds to income receipt. And in particular, a transfer program that is more generous for those with low levels of earnings as SNAP is. One more thing on this, again, when we think about kids, research has documented very convincingly that low-income children who gain access to this kind of food assistance, I mean, the research comes from food stamps, um, as compared to similar children who do not, they experience long-term improvements in health and economic self-sufficiency. So again, helping families buy food for children is a cost-effective investment for the U.S. government. Lisa, you mentioned that during the pandemic, the number of recipients of SNAP benefits increased. Does that offer any lessons about the importance of SNAP? Do we learn from that experience anything? So during the pandemic, the number of people on SNAP increased, both because need was increased, but also, as is typical, Congress typically authorizes sort of a relaxation of restrictions. And in the pandemic case, there was explicit increases in the generosity of SNAP benefits. Um, I mean, Congress was really, you know, I think this was a very good thing. They realized, gosh, there's going to be a lot of immediate need in the pandemic recession, and they increased the generosity and eligibility for this program as a result. Uh, what happened? What happened was during one of the worst economic shocks to the U.S. economy, food insecurity actually fell. So this is amazing. It shows us that fighting hunger in this country is something we can do. We have a program and a distribution network in place that's well designed to assist people with food purchases. Um, so the lesson I take away from that is that if we have the political will and inclination to eliminate hunger and food insecurity in this country, we can make the SNAP program more generous and achieve that. Yeah, that's really amazing, as you say, that it was a demonstration that we can, in fact, do a lot more for the most vulnerable in the country. So finally, we have the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, the TANF program. What do we know about that? As I said, TANF was implemented as part of the 1996 welfare reform legislation that effectively ended welfare as we know it. And that's the quote. That's what people were saying at the time. Um, you know, this shift from cash welfare to a program that's time limited and imposes work requirements on beneficiaries, it definitely succeeded in reducing welfare caseloads. Um, and it also appears to have succeeded in getting more single mothers with children to work. Now, it happened at the same time as EITC expansions and a strong economy. So just how much of that increase was due to TANF is something that people debate. But it did sort of fundamentally change the nature 
of um, dependency among single mothers and children. EITC is the Earned Income Tax Credit Program. Right. Thank you. Um, on the flip side, you know, these changes have made TANF, it's much less effective as an anti-poverty program in the U.S. than a more expansive cash assistance program might be. In fact, given the way TANF is now paid out to states as a block grant, and given the way states have a lot of flexibility in what to do with TANF spending, only like 23% of all TANF spending is now paid out in cash benefits. Um, and so it's much less of an income support program to low-income families with children than the previous AFDC program or, you know, a more kind of basic income program would be. What are states doing with that money if they're not spending it on cash benefits? Well, overall, 17% was spent on childcare, 10% was spent on education and training programs. The remainder is spent on other things like pre-K programs or fundable tax credits. How much these kinds of programs are helping families get out of poverty uh, or meet their needs is really a bit inconclusive and it's very dependent on the particular nature of a program, which is going to vary state to state. Melissa, one of the big topics during the debate over the debt ceiling was work requirements. Some people argued that we should not just hand over money, but make sure that there's an incentive in place to get people to work so they'll eventually not need these programs. And the earned income tax credit is an example of a program where you're not penalized for working. Well, there are two assumptions here. One is that the programs that do not have work requirements don't work very well. And another is that working people already make enough not to need assistance. Can you discuss the validity of these two assumptions? Yes, but let me start by saying the fact that we have this conversation, you know, every so often just makes me scratch my head and wonder, do people not remember that we had this conversation in 1996 and we already completely remade our safety net to be largely conditioned on work. So as I said, TANF and SNAP already have work requirements. So TANF, you can't get cash benefits for more than five years. And if you're able-bodied and seem able to work, you can't get TANF cash assistance unless you're already working or in a training program. SNAP, if you're an able-bodied you know, adult without a kid in the house, you can only get it for um, three months in a three-year period unless you're working 20 hours a week. So there's already work requirements on able-bodied adults in both of those programs. Medicaid is not conditioned on work, and I would argue that's a good thing. Uh, as as you, know, you and I mentioned earlier, like part of the issue with why the government felt the need to expand Medicaid as part of the 2010 Affordable Care Act was because so many people who uh, are unemployed, they don't have access to health insurance. So making Medicaid also conditional on work, uh, that will throw us back into a situation where we have many, many millions of U.S. adults without um, health insurance. And there's all sorts of social reasons why we don't want to go back to that situation. Uh, so like I said, you know, these programs, cash assistance is already in this country generally conditioned on work. Medicaid, I would argue, shouldn't be conditioned on work. And the other important thing to remember is that while work is certainly protective and people who work, especially full time, are much less likely to be poor or near poor than others, plenty of people who do work still have trouble making ends meet. Ann Stevens had a very nice Econofact memo on this a few years ago, and it shows how many people you know, are, who are working still find themselves living in poverty or near poverty. 
And a lot of that is driven by the fact that there are people who just don't command high wages or have trouble securing full-time, full-year work. So, Melissa, I started out this interview by mentioning that the move to cut these programs or to reduce the number of beneficiaries was said to be an effort to save the government money and to reduce the federal budget deficit. You have a very nice Econofact memo on this point. Could you put this claim in context? How much do these programs cost and how does that compare to other categories of federal government spending? The short answer is that spending on SNAP and TANF comprise very small shares of the federal budget. Combined, they account for less than 3% of annual federal outlays. Medicaid spending also accounts for a relatively small share of the federal budget as compared to, say, Social Security and Medicare. So in 2022, the federal government had outlays of $6.2 trillion. In that same year, the federal government spent $149 billion on SNAP, reaching 41 million uh, individuals a month. Federal TANF spending was you know, a drop in the bucket compared to that, $20 billion, reaching an average of 1.9 million beneficiaries a month. Medicaid had outlays of $592 billion, which comprised 9.4% of all federal outlays that year. Uh, it's noteworthy that a little less than half of that was on children and non-disabled, non-elderly adults. I think it's worth pointing out that these shares stand in sharp contrast with the budget shares devoted to Social Security and Medicare, um, which is why it was so striking that those programs were taken off the table of debt ceiling negotiations. Social Security outlays comprise 17% of the, of the federal budget and Medicare spending comprises another 14% of the federal budget. And spending on both of those programs is projected to rise in the coming decades, given, given the aging of the population and rising health care costs. So we're just really not going to make much of a difference in federal spending if we only focus on these um, smaller cash assistance or near cash assistance programs serving low-income individuals. So, as you said, Social Security was 17% of the federal budget. Medicare was 14%. I'll leave it as a homework assignment for our listeners to figure out what percentage of $6.2 trillion is the $149 billion on SNAP and the $20 billion on TANF. And we'll have the answers online. <laughs> um, on the other side of the ledger, Melissa, what are the benefits of these programs, especially um, for children. And as I mentioned, I know childhood poverty is a particular focus of your research interests. Yeah, thanks for giving me the chance to highlight this. As I alluded to earlier in this conversation, spending on children from poor and low-income homes in the form of income assistance and, and through Medicaid health insurance, uh, we just have really strong evidence that this yields sizable improvements in children's health and educational outcomes and yields long-term benefits. So really, we should think about cutting these programs as a counterproductive move against the need to build a healthy, um, productive workforce for our future. I mean, that you know puts it in just hard, hard, cold-hearted uh, economic terms. Um, but I think that's worth emphasizing that even if you don't feel the, or we don't feel a moral imperative to take better care of kids in this country, the economic case for doing so is quite strong. 
there's a book by the famous economist Alan Blinder uh, that was titled Hard Heads and Soft Hearts. And that's a really important idea that we can still be very hard-headed about these things, but have a sense of empathy and a sense of community for the country in the context of thinking about the efficacy of programs. And we could still come up with a much stronger safety net than we have. In fact, how does the safety net compare with that of other countries? How does the, how generous is the United States in its provision for the most vulnerable of its citizens compared to other advanced economies? I mean, other high income countries tend to have much more expansive welfare programs. Um, you know, the U.S. is a rare exception in not having any sort of unconditional child allowance or child benefit, not having publicly funded child care, among other state provided benefits. So I don't think it'll surprise any of your listeners to know that the U.S. Um, does less as a, as a state, you know, when it comes to the government and taking care of our vulnerable um, populations. So these are really important points, Melissa. And- I appreciate all the research that you've done. You're really one of the leading people in this area, and I especially appreciate you coming on to Econofact Chats again to talk about these important issues. So thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.